We've been looking at some of the distinctive portraits um, that the gospel writers paint uh, about Jesus, right? They, they all come at a, from a different angle when, when they talk about the life of, of, of Christ. And so we looked two weeks ago at, Ma- at Matthew, and Matthew, even though, he wasn't, even though the gospel of Matthew wasn't the first one written, it, 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 it has its place because as the first uh, of the gospels in the New Testament, because Matthew portrays Jesus as the one who fulfills the promises of God to his people. That a Messiah would come because the Jews had been waiting for a Messiah. And so Matthew's there because he's showing them that God fulfills his promise. The Messiah has come. And then he also fulfills God's promise. Matthew shows how Jesus fulfills God's promise to forgive sin. So we spoke about that two weeks ago. And then uh, we looked last week at the book of Mark. And um, Mark was the first gospel that was written. And Mark tells us about the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. Because there was a lot of expectation amongst the Jews for a super duper king kind of guy. Like, you know, I don't know, like think of some amazing leader. I can't think of one. Anyway, so that's what they were waiting for, this king, right? And and Mark comes and says, no, this is going to be a different kind of Messiah. And so we spoke about that last week. And we also looked at the fact that Jesus calls us to be a different kind of disciple. And what Mark shows us is that Jesus is, is getting, wants to get this message across that we too have a cross to pick up and carry. That we too have to live a life of denial, right? That we, in the same way that Jesus laid his life down for others, so too should we lay our lives down when, when we are called upon to do that. And so we looked at Matthew and Mark, and, and I'm going to wrap up these talks today. And I want to look at Luke this morning, Luke's gospel. I want to look at what Luke has to say about Jesus. He has a lot to say, but I'm going to pick on one thing this morning. And so I'm going to start by asking you all a question. Listening? Okay. If you were to choose a single word, right? Just, just one word to describe the feeling that people have when they truly experience the kingdom of God in Jesus, right? When they truly come to a place of connecting with God, just one word. What would that word be? Euphoria. Grateful, I heard. Peace. Reverence. Love. I heard love. Awesome. Those are awesome words and not one of them is wrong. But I didn't get the word that I wanted to hear. (laughs) And the word that I wanted to hear is the one that Luke uses. Luke uses a particular word over here. uh, and, And the word is welcome. Welcome. It's an interesting word. Luke tells us that the ministry of Jesus was a welcoming ministry. So wherever, whenever, however the kingdom manifests itself, there is welcome. Welcome to those who would step into the kingdom. And, it, and it's a good word. And as I was thinking about it this week, for me, welcome is a, is a, is a, is a tangible word. It's, it's, a beha- it's a behavioral word. It's like, and love, is, that love was actually the first word I was expecting. But, but um, to me, you know, when it comes to the word love, we could probably uh, sum the ministry of Jesus up with that word, that word love. But when I think of our world today, love has got so many different meanings and love has been watered down in so many different ways. And, and a lot of the time people associate love with, with, with feelings. But welcome to me, you know, that's associated with behavior. That's associated with action. 
to welcome someone is to do something. So for me, when it comes to that word welcome, welcome gets down to the nitty-gritty of life. Welcome has to do with the way you relate to your spouse. Welcome has to do with the way you relate to your children or your grandchildren. It has to do with the way you relate to your work colleagues or if you're sharing a house with your housemates. Members of our church, right? People that you meet in Woolies or Coles or Aldi, wherever you go shopping. I don't know where you go shopping. Do our words, our presence, our faith, does it seem welcoming to people? Do they feel acceptance in our presence? And more personally, you know, when people come through those doors on a Sunday to this church environment, do they actually feel that this church is a welcoming church? Uh, I don't know. Do, do people feel that I'm a welcoming person? Am I a warm person? Cuddly? Huggable? <laughs> Am I welcoming towards them? And I, and I think about this. When people show up at, our, at my home, you know, Debbie and I, our home, is that our, do, when people come to our house, is, do they feel welcome in our home? Do they feel a sense of hospitality? Do they feel a sense of peace? Do they feel um, rest in, in, in our home? Welcome. And, and of course, when, when you think of that word welcome, it's not just at an individual level. Welcome is, is citywide. It's, even, it's, it's, it's global. If we think of, our church, uh, of, our, of the city we live in, Perth, how does, how does the city that we live in communicate welcome? How does it communicate welcome to poor people? How does it communicate welcome to, to people who are just moving here? Immigrants. How, how does it communicate welcome to a newborn child or an unborn child? to someone with disabilities. And you know, welcome is particularly important in a season like the season that we're in right now because, you know, it, it's hard sometimes for us to get our heads around this, but they say that this is, this is probably the loneliest time in human history. For many, many, many people, many, many people are lonely. Record, pe record numbers of people who struggle with, with loneliness. And you know, so I think if, if, if there ever was a time when the welcome of Jesus practiced through us, practiced through his followers was needed, um, it's, it's today. It's for those around us. It's for those who are lonely. It's for those who are hungry. It's for those who, who are in need. It's for those who are looking for something. It's today. So Jesus was a welcomer. Maybe you could just turn to somebody close to you and say, Jesus was a welcomer. I know it sounds a little bit like first year at school. Jesus was a welcomer. Now the question you need to ask the person that you told them that Jesus was a welcomer, ask them, are you a welcomer? Okay, we hope, we hope for honest answers. <clears throat> okay. Jesus was a welcomer, and, and, and Luke portrays this uh, even when it came to the enemies of Jesus. This is what we read in Luke chapter 15 in, in the first two verses over here. Luke tells us that there were these tax collectors and these sinners, he points out these sinners, who had gathered around Jesus to listen to him. They'd come to hear Jesus. Um, 
Then Luke says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering amongst themselves. I spoke about this not too long ago. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He welcomes sinners and he eats with them, this man. Let me, let me just give you a little bit of a background over here. Because the Pharisees were kind of like a Jewish sect. The, that word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parush, and it means separatist. Right? Separatist. The Pharisees were religious Jewish people who believed that they needed to separate themselves from everybody else. They needed to separate themselves, especially from sinners, in order for them to maintain a kind of ritual holiness and purity that would be necessary for them to draw near to God. So they separated themselves from everyone else. They were very exclusivist. Now, when the Bible tells us that Jesus sat down to eat with these sinners that, that he welcomed, to eat with someone in the first century, in, in, in first century Jewish culture, was very different probably to what we would think when it comes to the 21st century. Like this wasn't just grabbing a bite to eat, right? This was sitting down. To, 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 to invite someone in and to sit down with that person in the first century, was, was, it had deep, deep meaning, deep significance. It was to invite someone into a relationship, a deep, intimate friendship. That's, that's what was going on. And so if, if even if two people were at odds with each other, if they were in conflict with one another, the way the conflict would be resolved but would be by one of those people inviting the other over and saying, well, let's sit down and eat together. And, and through that, when they sat down for that meal, then that, that it was announcing to everyone that we're resolving this conflict. So there was a, there was a deep meaning to sitting down and eating with, with people. Eating together was a sign of um, relationships being healed. Eating was a sign of, of reconciliation. Eating was a sign of deep, deep friendship. When you sat down, welcoming, sit down, spending time eating together. A little different too, I think, you know, we sometimes will invite somebody over and, hey, come have a barbecue or whatever, have a barbecue. But, and we'll talk about things, sports, surface kinds of things. And then we might not see those folk for a while again. And so, and, and so, so the level of the friendship's there. But we have to ask ourselves, is it really, really deep friendship? Do they really know me? Do I really know them? This is the difference over here. Jesus sits down to really learn to know these people and for these people to, to learn to know him. So for Jesus to eat with sinners communicated that Jesus wanted to have a relationship with these sinners. He was welcoming sinners. He was saying that he wanted to be friends with the sinners. Now remember a sinner. <clears throat> a sinner in the first century was someone who uh, disobeyed the commandments of God in some way, right? The Jews had around 613 laws, the, the Pharisees, that you'd have to abide by. And so a sinner would be someone who would have violated those commandments. For us these days, when it comes to, if we, if, if we think of our own sin, we understand that it comes from that Greek word homatea, which means that we've missed the mark, right? God calls us to a certain direction in life, and he says, this is the way to go. But so often we mess up because we decide to go our own way, and that's missing the mark. Okay, so let's just come back to the first century over here. These Pharisees are looking at Jesus, and they're shaking their heads because they cannot understand why this rabbi would invite into intimate friendship with himself people who these Pharisees would never, ever, ever give the day, time of day to. These are terrible people. Blah! Who wants to be with them? I don't want to be with them. They sinners. This is the Pharisees are muttering. And how can he? How can he? These people don't follow the laws of God. 
Have we got any Pharisees here this morning? Because I'm a 21st century citizen. And this is something that I get challenged with all the jolly time. I almost said another word. I, 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 I sometimes find myself in a shopping mall or a shopping center or sometimes on the street. And I look at some people. And, and I start immediately thinking adverse thoughts about them. I, I, I think to myself, these, ugh, I would not want to be with those people. I would definitely not want to be friendly with those people. And then the Holy Spirit <laughs> bah, 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 reminds me about God's view of those people. And I have to apologize to God quite quickly. And I have to keep on working on my, my own repentance. Because everyone in the eyes of God has unsurpassable worth. Every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Unsurpassable worth. And, and maybe like me, you need to understand that Jesus, who is incarnate, that's what we're going to be celebrating next weekend. Jesus is God come in the flesh. Jesus continually reveals God as someone who welcomes everyone. God welcomes people who don't know him. God welcomes sinners. God welcomes people who have broken the rules. I want you to take a moment and, uh, and just think for a moment ab about someone or some people that you struggle with. Just, uh, we're all in an honest space here this morning, okay? So somebody who gets on your absolute nerves, right? Someone who works with you, who, who maybe they're in your family and you're going to see them this Christmas time and you're already complaining. Somebody in your neighborhood, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the person that you see on TV, that politician, and they get up your nose, they grate the living daylights out of you, right? Or some actor or actress or some member of the royal family, right? I, 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 I just want you to think for a moment about someone who you struggle to see anything good in. Got him? Got her? Got them? Now try to wrap your mind around the idea that God has his arms outstretched in welcome towards that person. Even those people that we cannot stomach. Even those people who live a life very different to the one we would live. They have a different lifestyle to ours. God has his arms open and his hands outstretched in welcome. God welcomes everyone. Now, I'm not saying that God likes everything that people do. Okay, that's not what I'm saying because there are a lot of things that people do that God hates. But nevertheless, God welcomes anyone who would turn to him. Sometimes people make choices, they do things, and it's wrong in, in the sight of God. And we would say, well, that's wrong in the sight of God. But we can never forget that God has still got his arms outstretched in welcome of those people. Anyone who wants to come to him. Jesus invites everyone. He invites the person or the people that was going through your mind a couple of moments ago. Prisoners, professors, parents, grandparents, teenagers, toddlers, 
divorced people, married people, CEOs, unemployed people, Jesus invites absolutely everyone to come to him and, and, and come into a place of friendship and relationship. And so what we find in Luke's gospel is that in demonstrating God's kingdom, in, in showing the world the heart of God, because that's what Jesus does. He shows us the heart of God. And what Jesus is doing is welcoming people. That's, that's the heart of God. And Jesus welcomes people. When you read the book of Luke, you find that he reaches out to, the, at, at, at best, people who are marginalized in that society, and at worst, people who were completely rejected. Jesus welcomes them. He welcomes sinners. Now, I don't, we don't have time this morning to go through all the various groups that Jesus reaches out to. But if you read Luke, you find that he reaches out to Gentiles, sick people, the Roman le- leaders and, and uh, centurions, poor people, women, people of faith, people who have no faith, uh, religious people, marginalized people, rejected. He reaches out to everyone. But I, I want to briefly just touch on those that Jesus sat down to eat with. Sinners. And I want to come at a bit of a different angle over here because Jesus welcomes sinners. The the, the gospel of Luke speaks about God's open, welcoming arms, welcoming people to himself. So we're going to read a little story, a little parable that Jesus told in Luke 18 verses 9 through to 13. Okay, Um, it says here, Luke says that to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Has any of you ever looked down on anyone? So he's not talking about you. Okay. I think he's kind of talking about me. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and, and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Jesus says, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. And, and one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, well, he went in and he stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am, am not like other people. God, I, I'm so thankful. I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers. And, and God, I'm, not, I'm definitely not like this tax, this, I can't even say it, this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I do. And I give a tenth of all that I have. Jesus tells the story. Then he says, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So what we have here in the story is, firstly, we have a tax collector. And if you know anything about the first century, a tax collector was hated, was despised, was spat on. Just the worst kind of person, hated more in ancient Israel than we, we don't hate or dislike tax collectors today. Um, Anybody like anybody in the tax world? We're, we're kind of safe. Anybody love tax collectors? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. I think in every age, people have hated paying taxes. But these guys in the first century, were pretty, were they, they weren't only putting their hands basically into the pockets of, of their fellow countrymen, the Jews, and taking out their money for taxes. And actually, they were robbing them, take, charging them more for those taxes. Um, the thing about these people that, the reason why they were so hated was because they were, they were collaborators. They were traitors to the Jewish people. These tax collectors worked for and collaborated with the occupying power. Remember, um, Palestine was under occupation by the Romans. 
And these tax collectors had made a deal with the Romans to collect money from their own people. Right? The moral position didn't matter to them. Money is money. That was the attitude. And then in this parable that Jesus tells, you have a Pharisee. A Pharisee, remember, is this person who's absolutely loyal to the Jewish people. This is someone who is absolutely loyal to the laws of the Jewish God. A Pharisee. So back to this tax collector. Now, I don't know about the story that Jesus told. Something must have happened with this tax collector guy. I'm sure Jesus drew on some of his, his experiences when he told these parables. This tax collector, something had happened to him. He goes to the temple to pray. And, and, and you know, I don't know, when, if you read in Luke uh, a couple of uh, chapters earlier, you find that Levi, uh, who be, actually became one of the disciples, he, um, he threw a party for all of his tax collector friends, and he invited Jesus to the party. And I was just thinking, maybe this tax collector was one of the guys who was at, at the party. Maybe, maybe this tax collector that Jesus is using in the, in the story was a guy who'd, who'd actually had a conversation with Jesus. Maybe, maybe he was utterly undone after having that, that meeting with Jesus, listening to, listening to his friend Levi's guy that he invited to this party, right? Jesus. I can imagine, you see, because this is how God works. When God begins to get to you, something begins to happen on the inside. Something begins to get all riled up. And I can imagine this tax collector up all night thinking about his life after encountering Jesus, thinking about what a disgusting mess his life has become. He's pacing around his house. I don't know if you can picture it. He can't sleep. His conscience is killing him. He feels like he's fallen into a dark well, like he's drowning. And he decides that he's going to do something, and it's totally out of character for him. The next morning, this tax collector gets up and he decides, I'm, I'm going to go to a place that I haven't been to in years. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to go there for morning prayer, because if I don't get some help, I, I don't know what, what I'm going to do, because I, I just, I'm not able to live with myself. This tax collector is the, is the utterly irreligious person who decides one Sunday morning, I'm going to church. That's the picture. And so you can imagine the crowd pushing into the temple. And there's this non-religious tax collector guy. He's kind of being dragged in with the crowd. He's not very comfortable. He's like wondering what people are thinking, you know, why they're looking at him, you know. He's not used to being in a religious setting. He's, he doesn't really even know what to do. And then you've got the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is like, I'm, I'm cool. He just kind of drifts into the temple. He does it three times a day, goes for prayers, walks in. Everyone greets him. Hey, how are you doing? You know, he's comfortable. He's at, he's at ease in, in this religious setting. And so in verse 11, this is what we read. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, uh, or even like this tax collector, right? What's going on over here is that in his relationship with God, this Pharisee is appealing to how he lives. He's appealing to his track record. 
what he's doing is he's saying, well, God, as I come before you today in prayer, I reflect on what I have done and what I haven't done. And you know, God, that I've been trying my best. I've been going to church on Sundays. I don't swear nearly half as much as I used to when I get cut off in traffic. And, and God, I give money to the church. And, and I've really, really been trying in my marriage. And I go to a small group and I have a quiet time almost every day. And I've been praying, oh God, and I've been reading my Bible. And God, I I even listen to a Christian radio show now and then. That's what's going on here. And what's, a, what's wrong with appealing to your track record? You see, what's, it's, it's not that um, it's distasteful to God that a person is faithful, right? It's not that faithfulness means nothing to God. Faith, being faithful to God is really important. The problem with appealing to your track record is the notion that I come before God and as, as a result of all that I've done for you, God, now you've got to do something for me. You owe me. It's the unstated assumption in light of all that I've done for you, God, in light of everything that I've given up, in light of all my energy, all my early Sunday mornings, all of my effort, I've done all of this for you during 2022, God. Now you need to come and do something for me. You owe me. You know, I just want to say this morning, if you have ever had to deal with any bitterness in your heart towards God, maybe this is at the root of the problem. The view that God owes you in some way, that God didn't pay up, that God didn't do what you wanted him to do. And if you, and if you believe that God owes you, if you believe that God should have done something for you, then I want to tell you this morning, you don't really understand the Christian gospel because the gospel teaches us that everything we have from God is a, bless, a blessing. Every answer to prayer, especially our own salvation, is a gift. He owes us nothing. You, you can't turn the tables on God and say, God, why have you done this or why that and start blaming God? You can't have that attitude. You can't have, well, you, you've got to come through for me. You owe me. See, I want to contrast the Pharisees' view of, uh, of him looking at his track record before God with the prayer that the tax collector prays in verse 13. The tax collector prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, that's an ancient prayer of the church. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not about my track record. It's not about all of the good things or the right things that I've done. No, no. God, be merciful to me. And you see, this is the thing that maybe we can learn here this morning. A humble person never appeals to what I've done before God or for God. And you never appeal to, to merit. A humble person is always going to appeal to God's mercy. This tax collector actually understood the gospel. That's why I think he might have had a conversation with Jesus. The only way that I can ever stand before God is because of God's mercy. His sheer mercy. A humble person is going to come before God and they're going to say, God, I owe my very existence to you. God, the very way that my DNA is arranged in my body, the fact that my lungs are working and that I can breathe, the fact that my kidneys are working and I can go to the bathroom, the fact that I, that I have something to eat, the fact that I have clothes to wear, the fact that I have a roof over my head, the fact that I can take a shower, that is a gift from you. And the only way that I can come into the presence, the only reason why God might even answer my prayers is because of the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, and his death on that cross for me. You see, humility says that if I'm, if I'm just one little iota different than what I used to be, 
If, I, if I'm someone who's stopped all of the destructive behaviors that I had in my life, if I'm someone who goes to church regularly, if I'm someone who has forgiven others, if, if, if I pray, if, if, if I'm doing things and living my life differently to what other people do and, and the way they live, it's not because of me, it's because of you and your mercy. If I see anything that is, that is good within me, if, if, if I've told the truth where I used to lie, if, if I've served even in inconvenience, where I've not tried to manipulate my way out of that serving, if I've persevered and persisted through great challenges and difficulties in life, if I've been courageous, it's because of your mercy and your grace, nothing else. And I just want to leave this with you this morning. That is the person that God welcomes. That is the person that God welcomes, like this tax collector. This is the person whose prayer is going to get into the very throne room. It's not going to bounce off of the ceiling. It's where you come before the Lord and say, God, be merciful to me. The person that God welcomes, the prayer that God affirms is, God, you've been so good to me in the past. You've been so merciful to me. I've experienced your grace. Lord Jesus, would you be merciful to me again? Would you be merciful? to my son or my daughter this Christmas season? Would you be merciful to my mother or my father? Would you be merciful to my friend? Would you show mercy again to me, Lord Jesus? For no other reason than, than you are a God who is rich in mercy. You're not cheap. You're not stingy. Father, you're a merciful father. Would you, out of the abundance of your mercy, be merciful to me in whatever the area might be that you want to bring before the Lord? Lord, would you show mercy to me? If I'm struggling with relationship issues, if I'm struggling with financial issues, God, would you be mercy? Would you show mercy? When it comes to the repentance of a loved one, God, would you show mercy over their life? It's not by what, not by what I do for you. It's not by my actions. It's not by how good or how religious or how, whatever I do for you, but God is out of your mercy. You don't owe me a thing, but God, would you be merciful to me? Would you show your grace? I want to encourage you this morning. When Luke talks about welcome, the person who prays that kind of prayer, be merciful to me. I'm nothing before you, but because of your grace, because of your mercy, that's the person who's going to discover Jesus in a much deeper way. Amen.